Have faith in God. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We're going to be in the last half of chapter 12 and the rest of chapter 13. We'll read here in a moment verses 14 through 18 of Genesis chapter 13. But we'll be looking at 12, 10 through 13, 18. As you're opening there, uh, let me just mention a word about how this sermon series is going to go in so many ways. Um, it, it's important for you, if you can, to do some homework every week. Now, all I'm asking you to do is read the Bible, and I don't think that's too much to ask. Uh, if you'll just look in the bulletin every week and see what passage is next, and try to read that passage before church the next Sunday, that might be something worth doing anyway, I, I think. I, you know, it's kind of weird for me, because I don't know. Uh, but it seems like it'd be a good thing. I read the passage every week for sure. But it might be worth you doing as well. And so uh, just to spend a little time in the passage. But we're going to be looking at, at a lot of times in, this, in these chapters, there are long narratives where there's lots and lots of verses telling one big story. And we don't want to do damage to the text by shrinking down onto just one sentence and sort of making an allegory out of it or something like that. We want to really get to the bottom of what Moses was trying to say. And sometimes the big point of a passage takes two or three chapters to really get a grip on. So the more work you do reading on the front end, the easier it's going to be for you to understand the sermons and see what the author is doing in the text. And that's what we want you uh, to be able to do. So if you didn't this week, that's okay. Uh, we'll catch you up and we'll certainly be looking at the text during these times, looking at different verses, but it'll just be really difficult to read every verse every week. So that's your homework and uh, you guys can handle that, right? Everybody's good? Okay. If they were good back there, we're, we'll all consider us all to be good. If you have your Bibles open there, go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds today, Father, to receive your word. And God, it is our sincere prayer that we would be changed by your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In December of 1763... He was committed to the insane asylum at St. Albans in England. Thus, on the other end of heartache and trouble and multiple, multiple, multiple suicide attempts, he was committed there so perhaps he could get better. There was a doctor who worked there, Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, there at St. Albans. And Cotton happened to not only be a doctor who was trying to help this man recover, but he also happened to be a believer in Christ. And so this doctor began to witness to him and help him. And one day, 
obviously not by chance. I think Dr. Cotton had left it there. This man ran across a Bible sitting on a bench. And as he read the Scriptures and was reminded of the witness of friends in years past and the witness of Dr. Cotton there, there in the insane asylum, he was gloriously converted to Christ. And he even stayed there an extra year beyond when he had to to continue to be discipled by Cotton. Yet the reality is, even after he was converted to Jesus, he was still troubled by intense bouts of depression and periods of overwhelming despair. He, he never totally conquered those things. In fact, over and over again throughout his life, he would go through these serious bouts of depression and near lunacy in so many ways and would further commit to attempt suicide and things like that. Never, he never, never fully conquered those things. And yet, in the meantime, God used him greatly. After he left the asylum, he stayed in a, in a place where he could board with a woman in only England. And there he met the local pastor, John Newton. John Newton was notorious for his joy as a pastor. And so as he got to know this man and, and, and started to realize his struggles, he started to encourage him and develop him and encourage him to use his gifts. He was a gifted poet to use his gifts to help serve the church. And thus it was that William Cooper became one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the Christian church. And every one of you have heard a song by either Newton or Cooper. They, they wrote a book called Only Hymns, of hymns to be sung in the church. And in that book there are over 300 hymns. And, and, and one that was written by Newton that came out in that book was a a hymn, you might have heard of it, called Amazing Grace. Cooper wrote hymns as well. And among the many he wrote for the book was, There is a fountain filled with blood. And another one, God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. And rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break, and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord. By feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. It is to the ways of God, the, the ways of the Lord that we turn our attention today. You see, in so many ways as a church, not necessarily as First Baptist Church, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, unfortunately, in the church here in America, in so many ways, has neglected the Old Testament. In fact, I know you don't have to confess because I know. Some of you, we got done with James, you said, that's the kind of thing I like is the book of James. And then you hear, we're starting in Genesis after James. And your countenance falls and you go away dejected like the rich young ruler. I'm sad. 
Because we, we have weaned ourselves off of the Old Testament. And there's a sense in which we think if we're going to really know and serve and love God, if we're going to really grow in our spiritual lives, it has to be done from the New Testament. And surely, yes, from time to time, we've got to eat our Old Testament. Like, from time to time, we have to eat bland broccoli. But the reality is that we feel that way. And in part of what we've lost, as we've lost the Old Testament, is an instinctive sense of the way God works, the things God does. We have lost a sense, as we've lost the Old Testament, of the ways of the Lord. And sometimes we falter and we worry that God is not keeping His promises, and so much of what we're missing is the record of God's faithfulness. These pictures, these pictures of providence. So often we look at the world and say, I wish I knew what God was doing in the world. All the while we have record after record after record of what God was doing in the world for millennia, and yet we neglect it because we want to wonder about what God's doing today. Have you ever wondered if perhaps you might start to get a sense of the way God's providence works and the way that God works things out in the world? If you were to, I don't know, for example, read about how he's worked in the past. God deals kindly with His people. And so often, the Old Testament gets a bad rap that it's all about wrath and it's all about judgment, but ultimately the Old Testament is the first half of a book that's about grace. And the whole story is ultimately about God's grace. And so I want to show you this morning, as we begin to look at this foundational book of the entire Bible, and certainly of the Old Testament, I I want you to start to see and to get an idea of the contours of the ways of God. How is it that God works? What is it that God does? And I think as you begin to be familiar with the way that God treats His people, you'll start to feel more and more courage and more and more faith and more and more trust in the way that God is dealing and working with you. Three points from this passage that I think are going to help you remember how God keeps His promises. Three ways this morning that we can look at Abraham's story and gain faith for our own journey. I think these truths will help bolster your faith as you walk with the Lord. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Trust God's promises despite your sin. Trust God's promises despite your sin. I oftentimes talk with people who really struggle with the Christian faith. In fact, they're some of my favorite people to talk to um, because I feel like I appreciate the honesty, right? Um, So often I think we're all sort of, sometimes as Christians, trying to kind of put on masks to make it seem like we don't have any problems with anything in the Bible or whatever else. And sometimes it's refreshing to talk to a skeptic who just kind of puts it all out there. And so often what I hear from people who struggle with faith, who have troubles with faith, are stories from the Old Testament. And they say, this guy Abraham's so good. What about that deal in Egypt? What about when he tried to give his wife away? And what I always say back to those people, two things. First, just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean the Bible prescribes something. Right? Just, just because the Bible talks about something that happened doesn't mean that the Bible's saying it ought to have happened or should happen again. In fact, I think this is one of those stories that's a description, not a prescription. And that kind of leads into the second thing I will often say, which is that if, 
if the Bible was the sort of REM version of theology that many of us want, just shiny, happy people holding hands, right? If, if the Bible was this pure, sort of perfect, pristine sort of world, the same people who criticize episodes like this would read it, and then that, what would they say? They would say, the Bible is ridiculous. It's a Pollyanna book that doesn't actually deal with the world as it is. But instead, what do we have? We have a scripture that as it describes human behavior and describes what people do, it really matches up neatly with the topography of the world as it is. There is a topography of sin, a sort of contours of sin that you see described in the Bible that really match beautifully and perfectly with the way we see the world. There's sin in the world. There's problems in the world. And the Bible doesn't hide it. And the Bible is not hagiography. The Bible is not trying to make heroes out of people. Not the apostles, not the Old Testament people. You get a picture of these people, warts and all. The same is true with Abraham. Famine has struck, and Abram and his cohort, they flee to Egypt. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Abraham hatches a plot. He recognizes, if you were to look in chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, he recognizes that his wife is pretty. It's a good thing to know. I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. You know, he, he, he's not doing one of these things where, like, you're so beautiful in spirit, Pharaoh will just long to be around you. And he recognizes how Pharaoh thinks. You are beautiful in appearance. And he's going to want, someone in Egypt is going to want you. And there's a way they might handle that. There's a simple way to handle it. And let me just tell you, it doesn't involve you having two husbands. Uh, And it doesn't involve me going and finding a new wife. It involves me not living anymore. And so Abram comes up with a plan, and he kind of tells this half-truth. He says, I'm going to tell him you're my sister. And the plan backfires. The, the, The plan backfires. First of all, I want you to know, this is not a good thing that Abram did. I don't think the Bible is telling us this is how we ought to plot, how we ought to handle things. No, the plan backfires, and Sarah, instead of just them being able to travel on through Egypt and be left alone, no, 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 well, this woman's a sister, yeah, well, I don't have any problem, I don't even have to kill this guy. You getting blood on my hands. My goodness, you know, here you come, you're living in a tent with this guy, and now you get to move into Pharaoh's house, doing him a favor. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah. Notice what the Bible says, verses 18, 19, and 20. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. With God's people in Egypt and Sarah in the house of Pharaoh, it seemed as if the promise was in peril. It it seems that what God had promised Abraham, that he would have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, that, that he would bless all the nations through him and his descendants, that he would give him a seed. It seems as if the seed is soon to be snuffed out. God's people are in Egypt, not in the promised land. Sarah and Abraham are separated, and the most powerful man in the world 
has taken Sarah to be his wife. 